Hey guys, I was telling my table, you know that a new season of Amen is about ready to come to a close because you can walk to Amen in the light. Uh, so we're coming toward the close, and indeed we are. We're in chapter 15, and looking at a long passage this morning, turn to chapter 15, verse 13, and here I think we're getting at the, the real uh, animus behind Paul's letter. <clears throat> You'll remember that when we introduced this book uh, several months ago, we talked about three purposes that Paul had in mind, three layers. The first one is the obvious doctrinal purpose. Here you have in Romans the most thorough, exquisite exposition of the heart of the gospel. It's absolutely wonderful. We saw in those first four chapters, really, how Paul just laid it out in such clear tones so that ever since then, when you want to talk to somebody about giving their life to Christ, you can just turn to Romans. It's right there. The full explanation of our sin and need, of how it's only by faith in Jesus Christ and by His grace, and how justification works uh, because He stood in our place. Just a wonderful description. So the first purpose is to lay out the content of the gospel. The second person, uh, purpose that we noticed was that Paul shows the sociological impact of this gospel. That if indeed we are all saved at the foot of the cross, that means that Jews and Gentiles are saved in the same way, which means that we are all totally indebted to God through Jesus Christ, which means that we're brothers and sisters and must treat each other that way. So Romans 9 through 11 deals with the relationship between uh, Jew and Gentile, or even more specifically, the relationship between God and the Jews. Has he broken his promises? No. The promise was always to the elect remnant within the Jewish folks, and his purpose always was to include the Gentiles, Paul says. So he's making an argument for the Roman church for how they ought to live together. And we saw one of the key implications of that sociological implication in Romans 14 and 15, that those with the weaker conscience who've come from a Jewish background should not judge those with a stronger conscience and those with a stronger conscience, the Gentiles namely, should not despise the Jews with all their quirky ethical ideas. So we see that one of the main purposes of Romans is to encourage the Roman church to live together as a family in harmony. But there's a third driving purpose we noted uh, months ago, and that is what's going to be revealed in our text, that Paul has a missionary purpose in mind. You're going to see from the text we're reading as he closes out this letter, he says he's going to be coming to see them on his way to Spain. He's on a missionary, he's planning his missionary journeys. He's always planning and thinking ahead how he can advance the gospel from one place to another, always planning. And so he's planning months ahead now, and he's saying, I'm going to see you in several months as I come on the way to Spain. I'm going to use you as my launching pad. And when I come, you'll see he says he's looking for several things from them. So Paul's driving concern is missiological. Once again, think about this now. If the gospel is the only way to be saved, if through Jesus Christ is the only way to find righteousness, that would be true for Jew and Gentile. So we must live together in harmony in the church and we must take it to the world because it's their only hope. So the very content of the gospel by necessity means 
will be a missions-minded church. It doesn't matter what a church says they believe. You can tell what they believe by the way in which they address the external world. If they really are trusting in Jesus Christ and know what they've received in the gospel, first of all, they're profoundly grateful and they're now looking for orders from the Lord. Lord, tell us what now to do. So they're ready to be sent because they've experienced the love of Christ and the gospel. Secondly, if they understand how the gospel works, that it only comes from hearing the gospel and putting one's trust in Jesus Christ, and they realize that what Paul says in Romans 1 is true about all humanity, that we're damned apart from the saving gospel of Jesus, then we, of course, are going to be engaged in external mission. So you can look at the churches in Memphis and you can tell who really believes the gospel. I was talking to a universalist not too long ago. Uh, That would be a person who believes that everybody uh, will be saved regardless of their religious convictions, regardless of whether they heard the gospel or not. And uh, of course, I asked him, I said, well, I, I suppose then if you're a universalist, you would never send one of your people into a dangerous part of the world to share the message about Jesus Christ. And he said, well, I suppose not. We, we wouldn't do that. I mean, it, makes, it just makes sense. You wouldn't send a missionary to Saudi Arabia, for heaven's sakes, the person would get his head taken off if he mentions the gospel of Christ. But if you're a, if you're a Bible-believing person, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you believe what Paul's saying in this letter, absolutely, you must send someone to Saudi Arabia at the expense of their own life. So you can tell what a person really believes by what they're doing. So what Paul is showing us by his own living example, here's a man who believes intellectually and believes with his affections and believes with his will. He believes with his whole life. The gospel has transformed him. It's transforming the church to which he's ministering, and now it's going to transform the world. He really believes it. And so the question is, do you and I really believe it? We have to look at the world that we live in, We have 16,000 ethno-linguistic groups in this world, a little over 16,000. About 6,500 of them have no, virtually no Christian witness in their ethno-linguistic group. That means an ethno-linguistic group is a group that speaks the same dialect so they can understand each other, and they have the same general culture so that they live in community, they they communicate with each other. So you have 16,000 of these, 6,500 have no discernible or effective Christian witness in their ethno-linguistic group, and that amounts to about two and a half billion people. We have a lot of work to do. If you believe the gospel, we stay on that work. We get the gospel to every tribe, language, and people. As we just sang a moment ago, we send send our sons to bear this message, and we give of our wealth to speed them along the way. And we're engaged in this work happily, even at the risk of our lives and our children's lives. Because why? We believe the gospel. And we've experienced the gospel. We've benefited from the gospel. So Paul now takes us in to really the heart of his missional life. And it's very challenging to us. Let's just listen with open ears and open eyes. Let's examine his life. And then let's examine our own lives to see that we really believe the gospel. Look with me at chapter 15, verses 14 through 33. Hear the word of God. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. 
But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, this is not the end of Paul's letter. We'll see uh, in the next couple of weeks. He has some very important things to say, uh, especially in chapter 16. But it, it comes to a certain end of his argument where he's saying, this is the reason I'm writing to you. I want your help as I go to the mission field in Spain. Uh, this is crucial for us to grasp. It's the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you remember that in Romans chapter 1, in fact, why don't you turn there with me, keep your finger in 15, but go back to chapter 1. You remember this one verse that we examined where in 14 Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I'm under obligation. <clears throat> we said the reason he was under obligation it's not because they gave him anything that he's giving back. It's because God gave him something and told him to give it to somebody else. So he's under obligation to the Lord who gave him the gospel to be given away. And there's a sense of which we're all under obligation to do the same thing. Because if you receive the gospel, it's for you and it's for you to give away. So we're all under obligation. Then look at Romans chapter 10 and you'll remember the logic 
that Paul gave us about the gospel, especially when he was speaking about the, the uh, Jewish Roman Christians. He was saying to them uh, that everyone, verse 13 in Romans 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right? There's how you're saved. You call on the name of the Lord. There's no other way to be saved. He's already explained that in Romans 1 through 3. No way for a religious person or an irreligious person to be saved. God doesn't grade on the curve. God requires perfection. And all have sinned, Paul said, and fall short of the glory of God. So everyone now who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the definition of the group to be saved. Keep reading. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? So you can't call on Jesus if you don't believe in Jesus. Keep reading the logic. And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? So you can't believe in someone if you never hear about someone. See, with me? You can't be saved unless you call on His name. You can't call on His name unless you put your trust in Him. You actually trust Him. You believe in Him. And you cannot believe in Him unless you hear. Keep reading. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So they're not going to hear, Paul is saying, generally speaking, they're not going to hear from an angel. They're not going to hear a voice out of the trees. They're only going to hear if a human being goes to them and actually shares the gospel. Keep following his logic. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So how are they to preach unless the church is sending them around the world? There's your logic. We've seen... Uh, Several times, these pillars of belief that command that the gospel go internationally. The very nature of the gospel demands that it's an evangelistic, worldwide gospel because no one can be saved apart from hearing the gospel. I've told you before about my missions professor, Dr. Christy Wilson, who served in uh, uh, Afghanistan, and he had a man knock at his door in the middle of the night. It was a Pashtun tribesman who had walked two or three days straight to come to Dr. Wilson's uh, home in Kabul. And these were in the days when the whole church was underground because you'd be put to death for teaching the gospel. This man knocks on his door and says, are you a prophet? And Dr. Wilson, in the middle of the night, had the presence of mind to say, yes, I am. Why? And the Pashtun tribesman said, I had a vision that there'd be a man at this precise address that would tell me how to get to heaven. Sir, tell me, are you that man? Well, Dr. Wilson, of course, invited him in and, and shared the gospel with him. And the man became a believer. Now, notice something about this miraculous event. First of all, uh, to us in the West, this sounds very unusual. But most, uh, I think I've told you before that Dr. Uh, Manis Abdul-Nur, the late uh, pastor of Castle Dabara Church in Cairo, has led about, in his lifetime, he led about 200 Muslim background people to Christ. And when he was asked how many of those came by way of vision or dream. And he said, every one of them. So all 200 converts that he experienced had a vision of, the Lord, of, of the, someone telling them to go see the prophet, to go see the pastor, to go see the evangelist. Here's my point. Whether it's Dr. Wilson or Dr. Manise, in every case, the vision itself did not convert. 
So God doesn't convert people through dreams. What the dreams, our experience on the field is that these miraculous dreams and visions that are given simply lead the unconverted person to an evangelist so that they can hear the gospel from a human being. This is God's method, from a human being. Paul's argument is, therefore, how are they to hear unless someone preaches to them? How are they to preach unless they are sent? You you see the compelling nature now of the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ around the world through all the ages. So God, God, of course, can do whatever He wants to do, but it seems clearly from the Bible and from uh, modern missionary history that what He's pleased to do is to restrict the salvation of the lost people of this world to those who put their faith in Christ as a result of hearing the gospel from a human being. Now there's the obligation that falls upon the Apostle Paul. This is the Christian mission. And the Christian mission is every Christian's mission. Look with me then at verses 14 through 22 first of all. And here Paul is showing us that the Christian mission is God's mission. He's the one who's performing the mission. It's his business. When we engage in sharing the gospel with someone at work or one of our neighbors or one of our family or friends, we're engaged in God's work. Because the first point Paul is going to make in verses 14 and 15 is that it's God's mission, but it's through God's people. It's his choice to do it through just plain old knuckleheads like you and me, just ordinary people. Now, the Apostle Paul, I guess we could say, was not an ordinary person. We're ordinary. And God is doing it through his whole church. And here's what Paul is saying. First of all, that we are competent in Christ. We are competent in Christ. This is an amazing thing. Paul himself felt incompetent. You remember some years ago when we were studying 2 Corinthians. Paul says at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? Or translation, who is competent? to do these things. Paul knew himself in his own self to be incompetent. He was a Christian killer. Who is he to be sharing the gospel? Who's sufficient for these things? Then you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and you remember what he says. That he was complaining about the, 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 the burr in his saddle or the thorn in his side and he heard the Lord say to him, my grace is sufficient for you. So the grace of God makes us competent. We inherently, apart from the grace of God, are incompetent. But when we experience the grace of the gospel, we become competent. That means He, by His power, will work through us even though we're but dust. So we are competent in Christ. Secondly, we are in need of reminders. Paul says here, look, you're filled with all knowledge. You're able to counsel one another or instruct one another. Same word. But at some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. And you know what? Most of the Bible, once you become a, a Christian for a while, most of the Bible is a reminder. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. All of us who are 
Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, preachers. You know what we're doing? Mostly reminding people of stuff they already know. What do we do in Amen? We come together and there's a guy up front who reminds us of stuff that we largely already know. And some of you as teachers may think, oh, I got to come up with something new. I got to you know, dig around and do a little scholarly work and come up with something that no one's ever heard of before. So they'll walk out and go, wow, I never heard of that. If you did that, you probably didn't teach the gospel very well. That's all I can say. Because the gospel we hear over and over again. And what does the hymn writer say? Tell me the old, old story. Tell it to me again. Just keep telling me. It's like little four-year-olds. Daddy, read the same story. Read the story about the little lamb. Read the, read the story about the doggy. Just, they want the same old story. Well, when you become a Christian, you want the same old story, and we're the same old storytellers. We teachers and preachers, we're reminding you of what you've already been told. Why? Because you forget stuff. <laughs> That's why. You forget it here, you forget it here, and you forget it in your hands and feet. So the fellowship is largely made up of sharing things uh, which, uh, of which we need to be reminded. This is what the apostle is saying. So look, you're, you're his choice. He's going to work through you. He's going to make you competent, and he'll keep reminding you of stuff. And you need to be where you get reminded. Because yes, you're competent, you're full of knowledge, you're able to counsel one another, but you need to be reminded. So that's the reason we go to church, the reason we go to amen. Secondly, notice the Christian mission is God's mission because he does it through God's people, but he also does it for his own pleasure. It's for God's pleasure. Paul says, look, I, it's because of the grace given me by God to be a minister, a servant. That's what the word minister means. Servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You see what Paul is saying? This is all for his pleasure. I'm going to the Gentiles because he sent me. I'm gathering the Gentiles because they please him. It pleases him to have these. I go as a servant. So every day of your life, how do you see yourself? You see yourself as CEO, as important business, as up-and-coming businessman? Well, how do you see yourself? Here's how Paul saw himself, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in Christ's household. You're his servant. You're his butler. So let's be about our business. Paul identifies himself that way. Now, when he calls him, he says that he's in the priestly service of the gospel of God. This is an unusual way of speaking of Christian ministry. Now, certainly in the Old Testament, we have priests everywhere. They're in a sacerdotal business of intermediating between God and God's people. And they take sacrifices brought by God's people. They put them on the altar. So they're offering sacrifices that God uses as means of grace to encourage his people. And when you turn to the New Testament, you don't see this language. Now, I know in some of your traditions, Episcopalian, uh, Roman Catholic, and maybe some others, you, uh, Orthodox, you use the word priest for your religious leaders. I just would suggest in the New Testament, you really don't find this language. You find it right here, and we'll talk about this instance. And then you find it in 1 Peter, where uh, Peter speaks in 1 Peter 2.9 of our priestly service. Now, the sacrifices that we offer in the New Testament are, first of all, Romans 12.1, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So, first of all, our priestly service is to bring our own selves 
as a sacrifice. And then you find that we offer the sacrifice of support for missionaries. Paul mentions this in Philippians 4, that the gift the Philippians uh, gave him was like a sweet-smelling fragrance, a sacrifice to the Lord. And then certainly in Hebrews 13, the sacrifice of praise. But the big sacrifice that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as the writer of Hebrews says, that's once and for all given the sacrifice that's required. So the blood of bulls and goats cannot save. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ saves. That's the reason that the sacerdotal, the sacrificial ministry of priests is over because of the priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul uses it here to say, this is, and he just uses it as a metaphor. He's saying, this is priestly service. What's he saying? He's saying that when I evangelize these Gentiles, when you evangelize your friends, do you know what you're doing? You're gathering up other people who will be offering their bodies as sacrifices, living sacrifices to the Lord. So there's a sense in which you're gathering up more sacrifices to the Lord. And so you're offering your evangelistic work as a priestly service as you bring in the Gentiles from around the world, and now Jews, of course, too. So rather than thinking of priestly service as within the church, actually our priestly service is outside the church in the New Testament. Paul uses that analogy here in a very powerful way. So we're priests of the gospel. Now, thirdly, it's God's mission not only because it's through God's people and for God's pleasure alone, but it's by God's power. Paul says here, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I'll say he has reason. Here's some man who went from city to city over the scope of about 20 years where there were no believers whatsoever. In all of Asia Minor, in all of Greece, Achaia, Macedonia, and there are no believers. And by the time Paul finishes his career, ends up in Rome, he can look back and see that every single city not only has a believer, but has a church, has a gathering of people. This is a phenomenal record of effectiveness. I guess you could say he has reason to be proud. Of course, he hadn't finished his ministry here. This is 55, 56 AD. He's got another 10 years to go. But Paul can say, as he does here, that he has basically finished his work in that part of the world. He says, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, which is up near Albania, all that area in the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, he has basically planted a church. Now, he hasn't gone to every town and village. We know the apostle's strategy. The apostolic strategy was to go to the major cultural centers, the larger towns and cities that were multi-ethnic and were the key cities in the region, and they would evangelize that area, and then those people would go out to the villages, and they would spread out to the villages. Paul would go from major uh, cultural center to major cultural center. That was his strategy. It was a key city strategy. And he says, basically, I've done the work. I guess he could be proud. But notice what he says here. For I will not venture, verse 18, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, 
so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying, look, I, I, I suppose I could be proud of my ministry. Well, I, I, I'm, you hear me? I'm saying, yeah, Paul, you're the greatest, the greatest evangelist and church planter who ever lived apart from Jesus Christ. Paul is my hero. Yeah, you could brag. But Paul says, I don't want to speak of anything except what Christ has done through me. And we all, we all know why Paul considers that amazing. Because he knows he was a Christian killer. And this, he's the one that God chose to plant the church everywhere in the Mediterranean. He's amazed by this. I won't brag about anything except what God has done. He's done it through signs and miracles. When I go somewhere and they're ready to stone me, I can heal somebody. And they see that there's something divine in my ministry. God's done that. He has authenticated me. God's the one who's been leading people to Christ. You know, we, we preachers and teachers, you know, we, we look at a Bible text, we study it, we get ready to expound it. We want to, you know, uh, when, when I'm walking down the aisle at the benediction after Sunday morning, my pleasure is largely in whether I said to the people what God said in the text. And if I have confidence that I basically got the message out faithfully to the people, it was what God was saying in the text. There's great satisfaction in that. And then there's even more satisfaction if you think, you know, I illustrated this in such a way, I think they got it. Or if you had a sense that when it was being applied, you could see the people were responding. You can tell when you're speaking to a group whether they're responding or not. Oh, there's great satisfaction in that. So we preachers, you know, we're, we're workers, we're teachers, you all teach. We're, we're working on our lessons and trying to make it faithful to the Scripture and applicable for ordinary life. This is all good stuff. It's important that we do that. But brothers, if the Holy Spirit's not at work, nothing good's going to happen. And you can preach till you're blue in the face. You can spend hours on that message. But if God is not in it and changing the hearts of people, you can just go ahead and preach and you'll be no good. When God was showing this to Ezekiel, he sent him out to a graveyard. He said, Ezekiel, start preaching. Ezekiel says, huh? Preach to a graveyard, what good is that? These bones are not only dry, they're very dry. And so what does he do? He preaches to bones, dead bones. The knee bone connected to the shin bone. Here we go, man. Those bones start rattling and they start getting ligaments and flesh. It's an amazing picture of the work of God. Do you realize with your best Sunday school lesson, when someone's life has been changed, it's not because your lesson was so spectacular. It's because God has been pleased to work through you. And if you know yourself like Paul knew himself, you find that to be very amazing. So Paul says, I, I suppose I have reason to boast in my work, but I'll never boast in anything but what Jesus Christ has chosen to do through me. And I look in this room and some of you have done amazing things for the Lord. And we could, we could brag on you. Uh, but it, wouldn't it be better if we really roasted you instead of toasted you? Because it's the Lord who chose to work through you. That's what the Apostle Paul is celebrating here. He's showing us that he will boast, we must boast solely of Jesus Christ. And you see this in Galatians 6.14. May I never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he's boasting in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who's done the work. And then notice 
that we must stay on mission. See how Paul says about himself in verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now don't get discouraged because most of us here in this room are building on someone else's foundation. Yes, sir. I think I'm number 16 or 17 at Second Presbyterian Church, <laughs> senior ministers. That's not too bad for 175 years. You know, they don't throw us out too quickly. Uh, but you know, I'm a blip on the radar screen. You know, I've, just, I've been building on, on Dick DeWitt and on Lane Adams and, and many others that we could name. Uh, and the same with you. You go into a Sunday school class. Someone else probably organized that class, got it started. Probably somebody taught ahead of you. You're building on someone else's foundation. This is what pastors do. We rarely, unless we're church planters, go in and establish a new work. And even if it's church planting, where do most of your people come from? Other churches. You know, so you're, you're planting where others have already planted. The gospel's already been planted there. This is the work of pastors. Paul is not a pastor. He's an evangelist and a church planter. He has a clear mission. And you and I are to have clear missions about what we're doing. He had a clear mission on what he was doing. He was to go to the Gentiles. He wasn't to take his time pastoring people who were already converted. He was to take his time specifically to lead new people to Christ, get them organized under elders, and take off and hit the road for the next city. That was his task. He knew what it was. What's yours? When Jesus Christ came to save the disciples, he said to them, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That's your task, fishers of men. And your task is to do what Paul says to the Romans here. You're to love each other. So you're to build a genuine community of Christ and to live it out, to learn how to be spiritual family together, and then you're to reach your own neighbors. Now when Paul talks to the Romans, as we'll see, he's going to ask them for several things. He wants help. But you'll notice he doesn't say to them as at large, now I want all of you to go to Spain with me. Well, the reason is that we're not all called to that particular sort of ministry. He has other instructions for the Romans. I want you all to break down these ethnic barriers and get over it. Put your big boy pants on and treat each other like family. And stop making your bloodlines and your ethnicity and your religious background the labels by which you identify yourself. Start identifying yourself as brothers in Jesus Christ. That's what he says to them. And he talks to them, of course, about sending and evangelizing. But with himself, he knew his task clearly. It was to go to unevangelized regions, and that's exactly what he was doing. And Paul says in Acts 20, 24, Acts 21, 13, you can see those texts, that he'll do this until his last breath, and he'll do it at the risk of his own life. Whatever you do for the gospel, whether it's just having integrity in your business, sharing the gospel with your neighbor, or standing up for what's right within your church, whatever you do for the gospel, you must do it at the risk of your own life. If this gospel doesn't demand your own life, you don't have the right gospel. You've got a different gospel. The gospel that is, the gospel that saves, is a gospel that demands your life. It may be some small issue you've got to deal with today. But you put your life on the line for that small issue when it has to do with integrity for Jesus Christ. Wherever the battle is being fought, that's where you fight it. You don't have to be mean and nasty. You don't have to be harsh or supercilious nor self-righteous. But you just, you're, you're inwardly steel. 
because you're ready to lay your life down for the gospel. It doesn't matter who thinks you're cool or who doesn't think you're cool. It doesn't matter how much money you make or how much money you lose. You've got to stand for the gospel. Paul is willing to go from city to city all around the world, including Spain, to fulfill his ministry at the risk of his life. That's what we learn from him. So this Christian mission is God's mission. It eats us up. God works through us and God consumes us. Do we get this? We are sheep fattened for the slaughter, Paul says in Romans 8. We're being fattened so we can die for the sake of the gospel. So he works through us and he consumes us at the same time. Now, let's move secondly to verses 23 through 33. And here we see the Christian mission is not only God's mission, it's our mission. When we become sons of the living God, when we become his children, we take up the Father's business. It's a family business. And it belongs to every single one of us. First of all, it demands our provisions. Paul says, I I no longer have any room for work in these regions. And I've longed for many years to come to you. Why didn't he come to them? Because they weren't included on his mission strategy. He didn't just bounce from church to church based on who he wanted to see because he was homesick or because he was missing his friends. No, it was a matter of his missional strategy. That's the reason I haven't come. It's not because I don't like you. It's not because I don't want to be in Rome. It's because you weren't on the agenda. You, you all are already established. You've already been evangelized. Somebody did it. It wasn't Paul. So, therefore, you're not, I'm, I'm an evangelist and a church planter. You're not in my mission. Gentlemen, is your whole life shaped around the mission of the gospel, even your vacations? Everything. It's shaped around who you are as a missioner, a son of the living God. And he says, I hope to see you in passing, in passing. Is that a compliment? Oh, you're going to see me in passing. Great. You'll see me because Memphis is on the way to somewhere. Wonderful. No, they take great pride in this. This is their apostle. So he will see us, and he'll see us because we fit the evangelistic agenda of the apostle Paul. That's how you fit into his life. And you find as you go on in your Christian experience that really your closest friends, you know, after 25 years of being a Christian, you'll say, my closest friends are the ones who are connected with me in my gospel strategy. Those are your closest friends. They're the ones who are engaged with you in the Father's business. This is how Paul made all of his friends, uh, through con- leading them to Christ and then engaging them in the mission. He said, I hope, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And look at verse 24, to be helped, to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company, so they'll help him with company, for a while at present, However, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia. Those are Greek regions. Have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So let's look at how we give our provisions for the mission. First of all is our encouragement. And you see this in Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Encourage one another all the more as you see a day approaching. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But encourage one another, says the writer of Hebrews. And Paul is saying here, I want to be helped by your company. You know, uh, it was uh, Ravi Zacharias, not this most recent visit, but the one before that when he preached here at Second. Ravi, of course, is an evangelist. He spends most of his public time in generally hostile environments, okay? He's an evangelist, so he's speaking to people largely who don't agree with him. 
He goes on college campuses. He goes around the world. He speaks to unbelievers, Muslim background people, people who despise the gospel by nature. Spends most of his life doing that. When he came here to preach, which was largely not an evangelistic environment, although we do have some people, I'm sure, who belong to our church who don't yet know the Lord. But it's largely a friendly, encouraging environment. And Ravi said to me, he said, you know, I try to do this once a quarter. Just go to a healthy church and preach the gospel where it's being appreciated and received. He said, you know what? It's just a good reminder for me of how powerful the gospel is and how urgent the gospel message is when I see people who just love the gospel and I see how their lives have been changed. And he said, then I'm ready to go right back out into the hostile world. Evangelists like the Apostle Paul need the church. They need us to encourage them. Those who are our church planters, they need to be encouraged by us, although they don't spend most of their time with us. We need to be places of encouragement. Paul wants encouragement. Our missionaries want encouragement. When our missionaries in Memphis or our missionaries around the world come to visit us, they deserve our time. We lay aside our weekend. We lay aside our own comfort and convenience so that we can serve them with encouragement. Secondly, the Apostle Paul wants their hospitality. And in Hebrews 13, once again, the writer of Hebrews tells us how we are to accept strangers into our home. We may be hosting an angel and not know it. And so we're to give hospitality to our evangelists and church planters. Is your home open? Do you serve with your home, those who are serving in various places of the world? We are to be giving this. And thirdly, our finances. Paul is, this is basically a missionary prayer letter. He's telling them about the gospel, telling them what difference the gospel makes to them, and then saying, look, this same gospel is the gospel you've got to take to Spain, and I'm your representative. Are you going to Spain? No, I'm going to Spain. So who's going to pay for this? Me? No, you. (laughs) So when our missionaries come to us, basically what they're doing, they're giving us these absolutely wonderful investment opportunities. It's like someone who's got a new business that's just bound to be successful and they let you buy in on the early side of it. It's like buying IBM stock in 1955. You know, you're making this huge investment. You're going to benefit wildly from it. When you have a godly, competent missionary allowing you as a church to support them, they're giving you an investment opportunity you can hardly believe. So you don't go to Saudi Arabia, but you can support them with encouragement, with hospitality, with your your gifts, and send them, and they go in your name. They go in Jesus' name, but they go as your representative as well. And you and I are responsible for every square inch of this planet. Why? Because Jesus Christ made every square inch, and he rules over every square inch, and right now he's not being worshipped on every square inch. So we take the message so that we can sanctify the entire world through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Apostle Paul, your finances. The average gift in evangelical churches is somewhere around 3% of income. The median gift in American culture, if you just take all people in America, the median, not average, because the heavy gifts move the average up. The median gift is 0.6%, less than 1% of income. Americans think of ourselves as being very generous, and of course we are, because we have more money than anybody else. But on a percentage basis, we're way below where God commands us to be. Would you think about your finances? 
You know, if you take the American gifts that are given, only 2% of those gifts go to anything overseas. So 98% of our charitable giving stays at home. Now, I believe in taking care of home. You know, we're all committed to Memphis. We're all committed to the poor here in our country. We should be. But I've just described to you two and a half billion people who have no representative of the gospel in their culture. I think that demands something from us, a little bit more than 2%, wouldn't you say? So if you take the average gift, basically the, the average gift in America is somewhere around 2.5%. Multiply that by 2%. I think if I can do arithmetic here, it's five ten thousandths of our income is going to anything overseas. It's pretty low. Let me just ask you to take a hard look at your life. You are in a culture that's the wealthiest culture in the history of the world. The Bible says to give a tithe. That's for kindergartners. That's where you start. So don't move toward tithing. You start with tithing. You're moving away from tithing, not toward tithing. So let's get tithing done. If you don't tithe, start today. Go home and explain it to your wife. You're going to have to sell something, move into a new house. I don't know what you need to do, but let's start tithing. If you make more than $50,000, let's start doing more than tithing. In fact, if you make less than $50,000, here's what I think you ought to do. Tithe to your local church and about 5% of your income to the mission of Christ. If you make more than $50,000 all the way up to about $150,000, let's give two tithes. If you make more than $150,000, let's move on beyond that. If you make more than half a million, let's give about half of your income away at least. Come on. This is a wealthy culture. And it's a very poor world. A billion and a half people live on less than a dollar a day. Another two billion people live on less than two dollars a day. And we're sitting on all this wealth. We have enough food in this world to feed everybody. But we're not feeding everybody. You know why? 80% of the food gets consumed by 20% of the people, the developed countries of the world. So there's this, let's say, unintentional but real consumerist, consumptive culture that just like a, a drain just takes the resources of the world. They just go down that drain. And we, of course, are leading the way in that. And the gap between the rich and the poor is not just a phenomenon in America. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Demographers are very concerned about it. Economists are very concerned about it. The increasing gap between the rich and the poor. Well, we can't solve all that. We can't solve the problem of the richest people in the world because we're not the richest people in the world. But as a culture, we're the richest culture in the world. So what do we do? Just start with yourself. What do you need to live on? Instead of saying, you know, how much of my money do I have to give away? Why don't you ask this? How much money do I have to spend on myself? Because whatever I spend on myself, I'm not spending on the gospel ministry outside my house. And let's just change the way that we think about it. Paul was very bold in going to the Romans and saying, I want your money. Because... That is the priestly service of the Lord of gathering the Gentiles to bring them in to be worshipers, and I'm your agent. I'm your apostle. So he wants their finances. Now, secondly, the Christian mission is our mission not just that we give our provisions, but we, give, we make our plans. Paul's always making plans. And you can see in Acts 16, he planned to go to Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit stopped him. So our plans don't always get executed, but we're always making them. And then we leave it with God to change them. You know, uh, Colin Powell says, your, your first battle plan is changed the moment you engage the battle. 
but you don't go without a battle plan. So what's your plan? You have a plan for how to divest yourself and engage in the mission of Jesus Christ. Once you start engaging, you'll start making changes in your plan. So Paul had to make changes in his plan. He says, I'm going to come with you to you on my way to Spain. Well, do you remember how he actually got there? <laughs> on a boat as a prisoner. That's how he got to Rome. And he shipwrecked. So he actually came on foot in chains, having shipwrecked. I don't think that's what he had in mind when he said to them, I'm going to pass through on my way to Spain. Did he get to Spain? We have no idea. Scholars disagree on it. I don't know if he did or not. I, I suspect he, he may not have. Otherwise, I think we might have heard about it. But I don't know. But Paul's still making plans. What's your plan? Your financial plan? The, your evangelistic plan? Your plan for how you're going to support those who are going to regions of the world that you can't go to? Uh, so this is what Paul is saying. This is our mission. In uh, Luke chapter 10, you have Jesus sending out the 70 into Samaria. So this is early on in his ministry, and he sends them out two by two into hostile territory. Why 70? Well, I think it's because in Exodus chapter 1, we're told that there were 70 who were in Egypt when uh, Jacob's family came and brought his sons. There were 70 or 72. And I think what Jesus is doing is using numbers intentionally, just like he used 12 intentionally, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. He's the new Israel. Likewise, I think he's sending out 70 to say, everybody, all Israel goes out. All my disciples go out two by two. So he's sending all of us into the ministry. We all are the missionaries. Just because you don't go to Albania doesn't mean you're not a missionary. You're a missionary in East Memphis. So we support missionaries to do the work overseas. You're the ones, unpaid, who do it here. So everybody is about the Father's business, our plans. Thirdly, our prayers. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That is, pray for your missionaries. Pray for what? Pray that I may be delivered from the unbelievers. Pray for deliverance. We have missionaries in the Muslim world. We pray regularly for their deliverance. They're constantly being opposed. They're constantly being threatened. They can be thrown into jail. They can be, the worst things can happen to them. We pray for their deliverance. Paul was asking us to pray for his deliverance. Specifically, knowing that when he takes these gifts to Jerusalem, he's going to run into trouble. And of course he did. Now he was delivered from the Jews as he asked for prayers here in the sense that he wasn't killed. But he wasn't delivered in the sense that he wasn't imprisoned. He was taken on to Caesarea, you remember, and to be there for several years in prison. But he was delivered from death. So Paul doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but he knows he needs the prayers of God's people. And then what else do we pray for? We pray for faithfulness. And you'll find this in Ephesians, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4, where the Apostle Paul is praying that a door will be opened and that he will speak boldly as he ought to speak. So Paul wants to speak winsomely, but he wants to speak boldly. And this man who seems to us to be such a giant, such a titanic figure in history, surely he's, he's so bold he doesn't need our prayers. Paul is on his hands and knees begging us to pray for him because he knows that that boldness ultimately only is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ as an answer to prayer. So with your missionaries, 
and all the troubles that they're facing here in Memphis and around the world. We pray for them to be delivered. We pray for them to be faithful. And then lastly, the Christian mission is our mission because we do it with His peace and His presence. May the God of peace be with you all. Gentlemen, of course, when we think about the challenge of the Christian mission, we look at the hostility, the increasing hostility in our own culture, the difficulty that faces us in our world, and then we look at ourselves and all the questions that get asked us. We don't know the answers. We're not very good at apologetics. Sometimes we feel like we don't know the Bible very well. We don't feel like we can even explain the gospel very well to someone. We feel incompetent. So we're facing a very difficult and needy world, and we see ourselves as generally not up to par. you got to remember this. It's not who you are, it's who's with you. May the God of peace be with you, and indeed He is. The God of peace does what? The God of peace sends the Prince of Peace, who does what? Reconciles men with God, brings peace with God. And it does what else? Reconciles men with men so that they are living in harmony as Jew and Gentile. This is the work of the God of peace, and He's doing it through you. He's with you. This is a reason that before Jesus left this world, and we'll celebrate His ascension here in just a few days, before He ascended, in every gospel account and in the book of Acts, what do you hear Him say? Go into all the world and make disciples. That's the Matthew version. But there's a version in every gospel. It's clearly His most emphatic message before he leaves here, I want you to be my messengers of this gospel here and around the world. But what does he say? He says at the end of the Matthew account, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. That is, until I come again, physically, I'll be with you. And he explains this in John chapter 14 through 16. I'll be with you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm here. Jesus is here with us now by the power of His Spirit. You go out of these doors to testify to the world. He is with you. And what does Jesus say to His disciples in Acts chapter 1? He says, don't do anything until you've received the, the, the gift of God. What is this gift? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's through His power. It's His ministry working through you. And it becomes your mission because it's His mission, and He is with you and in you. This is the secret to the church's mission around the world. So gentlemen, that's the big task. That's the apostolic task, and it falls to every one of us, and there could be no more noble calling in life than to see yourself clearly as a brother of Jesus Christ and His missionary to Memphis and the world. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this great calling upon our lives to be fishers of men. Thank you for making it clear to us in your word. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, for the words of encouragement that come from him and ultimately from you to every one of us. To see the Christian mission as your mission and to see the Christian mission as our mission. And please show us again today what that means in practical terms in every one of our lives. For we make our prayer in the name of the Lord of the harvest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.